Good afternoon. I greet you all in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I bring love and greetings from Uganda, and uh, from my darling wife who is just there, Pamela, and from our host in Washington, D.C., Dr. Karin Ringham, whom we have known since 2005 when she was with Global Health Council. I'm grateful for this uh, invitation uh, to speak on a dear subject to me uh, about faith leaders and how we have been involved in the fight against HIV-AIDS uh, since 1981. Um, you've heard my personal story from the introduction, so I will skip that. And uh, if you have any specific questions you would want to raise later on, uh, uh, you could do, you have that liberty because I've been, I'm open and public about my status. So there is no question that will be out of bounds uh, for you to ask. Uh, I take this, as uh, Lorin has said, as God's providence. Uh, whereas the secular world has this concept of coincidence, uh, me, I don't have that in my theology. I have only God instance. There is a reason why I am here, not yesterday, not tomorrow, but today. And I thank God that uh, he has arranged that you are the people to meet uh, for a reason. Already one reason uh, I am thankful God to is I've met people from the Presbyterian Hope Church. And I said, wow, that's very interesting. How come that you are from Hope and I'm also uh, running an institute called Hope Institute? Uh, so that is already one divine connection. Um, let me tell you that uh, we got to know about HIV-AIDS in Uganda in 1981. And uh, so that means more than three decades of engaging with HIV. As people of faith, as religious leaders, uh, you, we can see three distinct phases with our response to HIV. One is the lost decade, 81 to 91, where AIDS was stigmatized, people were ashamed, people were denied, people were discriminated against, and abandoned, literally. The church did not do much, whether it is talking about risk reduction, whether it's talking about vulnerability reduction, whether it's talking about impact reduction. So we we repent with, the, um, with a, a heavy heart that we lost 10 good years. Uh, and that's 1991, that's when I lost my wife, Kellen, and then someone whispered and said, that pneumonia that has killed your wife is related to HIV. And we didn't know much because it was not a subject that was discussed in the faith circles. Uh, the only uh, thing we had was if you are not a homosexual and you are not a commercial sex worker and you are not a long distance truck driver, you don't have anything to worry about AIDS. So you can really uh, see the shock that happened in my life when they said your wife has died of an AIDS related illness. And I quickly went to check and unfortunately the test confirmed my worst fears I was HIV positive positive. and I remember the counselor 
gave me a stigmatizing look after looking at my collar and he said, man of God, what are you going to do? Not in an empathic way, but in a mocking way. Something like, even you, what are you going to do about it? And uh, I told him I did not come here with a strategic plan on how I'm going to handle my being positive because I didn't know I was going to be positive in the first place. But now that I know, let me tell you, counselor, the God who created me is going to give me guidance on what to do. And my testimony is the Lord has been gracious. The Lord has given me guidance. The first guidance I was given was how to be publicly open so that I can confront the silence and the stigma and the shame and denial around HIV. Those four were breeding two other issues. Inaction, people doing nothing at all, even when people are dying everywhere. Or misaction. Now, that's a word we introduced in English which didn't exist. But we just meant something you do zealously, religiously, prayerfully, and it produces the wrong results, the worst results. So it's called misaction. Like if you want to travel to Uganda and after 18 hours of flight, uh, you see a signpost saying, welcome to Ghana. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a misaction. There are many things we did as religious leaders that were a misaction. I'll give you one of example. When we forced people that because we are concerned about HIV AIDS, no person should marry in church without showing us their HIV status. And if they are positive, no marriage. If they are discordant, no marriage. Only negative people should be married in church. And we, we thought that was a good thing to do. Uh, only to find out that people were hiding away from us. They were changing churches. Or they were choosing to be married uh, outside the church. So we, we put AIDS underground rather than uh, sort of uh, the problem. We are two types of uh, church leaders or faith leaders in Uganda. Those who are passionate with the law of love. And then another group which is passionate with the love of law. The love of law, not in the sense of legislative law, but the love of religious law. Do not commit adultery. Do not, uh, you know, fornicate before marriage. Those things we know that have, have stigmatized people with HIV. So that has tended to bring two types of responses in Uganda. Religious leaders who are using AIDS to control their congregations. And those who are using their congregations or working with the congregation to control AIDS. I don't know if you were a religious leader in Uganda, where you would fall. Would you be among those who are using AIDS to control people? Thou shalt. The Bible says, Deuteronomy 28, if you commit adultery, you, you die. So, that's what 
some of the stigma we have had. But there are those who have been driven by the law of love to say no person deserves to die of AIDS. However immoral, however short of spirituality, God calls us to save lives of everyone. So those religious leaders have worked hard to reduce risk, to reduce vulnerability, and also to address the impact, the social impact, especially the orphans and uh, vulnerable children uh, born of HIV. After the last decade, decade of course, there was the, the, the active decade, 1991 to 2000, and now there is the very active decade uh, which introduces us to where we are now. Uh, but even then, you see, again, as I've said, two religious leaders who may, even when they are in 2019, they behave like we are in 1990. Uh, but thank God, where the church where I, I serve, they have been very supportive, very hardworking. We have the best uh, AIDS programs you can think about. Now, as I wind up, there are thing, three things I would want you to think about when you talk about the role of faith leaders and uh, connecting it with law. I already have said one about whether one is pursuing the love of power or the power of love. Uh, that, that one you have to think. But also there has been issue of the big hand of money that gives with the left hand and takes with the right hand. We have a policy which was like, okay, we are going to give you money, but all our American money must buy our medicines. That was, of course, we are grateful that Pepfar was born and uh, so many lives were saved. But remember, a brand drug costs $150 and a generic medicine costs $40. So if you give me $150, uh, I would treat four patients with that money you have given me. But the law says, no, our money must buy our products. So that's something you have to think about, whether that shows the love of a neighbor or whether it says, no, I will love my neighbor only as I serve my self-interest. The other one is, uh, of course, laws around no money for bad people. So we will not fund any money that may be accessible to prostitutes or commercial sex workers or drug addicts. And yet we know that's the biggest vulnerable group. And if we want to defeat AIDS, we have to tackle where the most at-risk people are, the most vulnerable families are, the most AIDS-impacted community groups are. But if the law is saying no money, we, we don't want our money to touch uh, uh, that group, then again, that's an issue for discussion. And uh, finally, what is right in religious language? Is it necessarily safe in a public health language? If I drink my water, I have not committed any sin. It's my order. If it is contaminated, I will die of typhoid. If someone steals my water, 
in origin, in origin we say he's a sinner. He's broken the law. If he boils the water, he doesn't get typhoid. So we have situations in Uganda where people who are religious, they are faithful, they have abstained before mar marriage, they are faithful within marriage, they die of AIDS because they confused what is right with what is safe. So faithfulness is not necessarily safeness. Although if you want both long life and, le and life uh, in eternity, you need to do what is right and what is safe. But confusing both uh, brings problems where people are blamed uh, for their problems or there is false security among those who are either abstinent or faithful and they say, where will AIDS get me? So they reduce uh, the law. So I would think that when we are working on the laws like deliberate transmission, uh, uh, money, where should we allocate money, we should think about those variables. May God bless you. Good afternoon. Um, so today I'm going to begin the discussion around global AIDS and the role of faith leaders um, at the forefront of the Bush administration. So um, where Canon Gideon started back in 1981, I'm going to start today at about 2002 um, at the turn of the 21st century. Um, so uh, in 2002, I began the work of raising awareness on issues of HIV and AIDS and extreme poverty in Africa around right of center faith leaders, particularly in Nashville, Tennessee, a lot about Tennessee today, um, it's home for me, so, uh, leading a conference on AIDS in Africa, science and religion at Vanderbilt University. Um, and as Canon Gideon has reminded us in the 80s and 90s, you know, HIV and AIDS was stigmatized not only in Uganda and Africa, but also deeply stigmatized in the U.S. due to intravenous drug users in the gay community who were victims of the culture wars during those years. Um, but it was important for faith leaders to take a stand, to reconsider the moral implications um, at home and abroad um, of this disease, which was, so, was for so many, particularly mothers and children included, a death sentence. We needed faith leaders to respond with empathy and compassion. So it was really important to rally conservative evangelical leaders from middle America on this little understood pandemic because they were the key block who had voted President George W. Bush into office. And when I talk about evangelicals, I mean conservative leaders who include Christian music uh, artists and authors, actors, athletes, pastors, nonprofit leaders, conference speakers, and others who have followers in the evangelical subculture. So in this talk, I'm gonna highlight their role in advocacy for global health. So in the early part of the 2000s, there's a growing concern among um, faith-based organizations like Samaritan's Purse, uh, World Vision, and Compassion International, who were service providers in Africa. 
And these groups were watching a hollowing out of societies, as Canon Gideon has mentioned, um, across sub-Saharan Africa and losing the battle against the HIV AIDS virus. Witnessing the onslaught of this pandemic ignited many to seek how to stop this disease with a unified front. So there was an uncanny alignment of leaders who came together to promote awareness about the issue and tackle the disease with policy and funding. And here I have um, a group of faith leaders, um, all of whom I have worked with. Um, Franklin Graham, who currently runs Samaritan's Purse, was one of the first to lead Prescription of Hope in 2001, which rallied um, both our government and faith leaders across the U.S. to reconsider the pandemic um, of AIDS. Uh, Senator Frist and Bono are in the far right corner, and they were looking at the issue for the first time in 2001. Um, and then from the bottom, Rick and Kay Warren um, out of Saddleback Church, Bishop T.D. Jakes out of the Potter's House, Max Lucado, who's a prominent author out of San Antonio, Texas, Michael W. Smith and Jars of Clay, who are artists out of Nashville, Grammy, Grammy award-winning artists, and then Tony Campolo, who is more of a progressive evangelical, but nonetheless at the forefront of this, even from the very beginning in the 80s. So all these were key supporters in those early years. There was also a book, The Awake Project, and an album, In the Name of Love, and the Warrens led an AIDS summit called Disturbing Voices at Saddleback Church in Lake Forest. And these were just some of the products coming out of the evangelical subculture to promote awareness and destigmatize the disease. Um, Secretary Condoleezza Rice, speechwriter Mike Gerson, Secretary of Health and Human Services Tommy Thompson, and Senate Majority Leader Dr. Bill Frist, who um, I've been working with for the past 10 years, uh, were among the key advisors to President Bush to consider the launch of what became PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. This legislation is perhaps the most prominent legacy of the Bush administration in hindsight, which provided a historic amount of funding for a single virus. During the eight years tenure of the Bush administration, faith leaders from all faiths, denominations, and faith-based organizations in the U.S. and in developing nations worked closely with governments and their ministries of health around the world to build programs and infrastructure to confront this deeply moral issue of saving lives from a virus that had no cure. In terms of successes, as many of you may already know, in 2002, less than 50,000 people in sub-Saharan Africa had access to antiretroviral medication. But since 2017, 21.7 million people globally have, at, have access now to ARVs, thanks to programs authorized by legislation like PEPFAR and the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria as a public-private partnership. This is thanks to the innovative leadership and now legacy of the Bush administration. Since 2000, because of these bilateral and multilateral efforts, the U.S. has led the world in funding to cut the number of uh, deaths from HIV and AIDS in half. In 2005, AIDS-related deaths around the world reached a peak of 1.9 million deaths per year, but yet with infrastructure, partnerships, and civil society service providers, that number is at about 1 million deaths per year now. In 2009, so here's the slide on the global AIDS deaths and the decline. You can see we've cut in half since 2000. In 2009, President Obama picked up the mantle of leadership in global health, and Congress continued strong, steady funding during his administration for foreign assistance. 
Faith leaders from the left to the right during these years provide us a sustained and constant presence to continue to support global health funding levels, including PEPFAR and the Global Fund, through letters, meetings with congressional representatives, and as service providers tackling disease and poverty. So here during the, those Obama years, you can see that the overall funding for the global health account um, is, is plateaued there at about $9.8 billion. Yet with the advent of the Trump presidency, we have been faced with an administration which has proposed for three years to cut foreign assistance or the 150 account or international affairs account by up to about, about one third. And you can kind of see the difference there um, in funding for this last 2020 request. This year for fiscal year 2020, the recommended cut is less severe, but it is still notably um, draconian at 24% overall. In the global health account for bilateral PEPFAR funding, the recommended cut is at 23%, and the recommended cut for the global fund is at 29%. We have found that though President Trump currently enjoys an approval rating of more than 70% among church-going evangelicals, our faith leaders have been willing to contest the recommended cuts for fiscal years 18 and 19 and 20 in the budget for foreign assistance. By signing letters to appropriators in Congress, Asking, asking to restore funding for the entire international affairs account, as well as the important niche funding like PEPFAR and the Global Fund. Many thanks to Congress, as many of you know, for your tremendous leadership in global health and holding the line on funding for the entire 150 account for the past two years, including full funding levels for PEPFAR and the Global Fund. More good news, last year Congress came together with a bipartisan effort to reauthorize PEPFAR for the third time since its initial legislation passing in 2003. The PEPFAR Extension Act signed by President Trump on December 11, 2018 will continue to authorize U.S. global HIV, TB, and malaria efforts and funding, including participation in the Global Fund for five more years. The Global Fund, however, is in a difficult position right now. The U.S. gets other um, countries to share the burden because U.S. law limits the U.S. contribution to 33% of the Global Fund budget. This matching with other donors a full 33% incentivizes them to step up where they otherwise wouldn't. For the Global Fund's sixth three-year replenishment, the administration has recommended an unprecedented new match for the U.S for $1 for every $3 contributed by other donors. And this is down from the typical $1 for every $2 contributed by other donors worldwide in the previous two replenishments. Proposing in its annual FY20 budget request to Congress at $958 million per year, a decrease of 29%, as I mentioned earlier. However, the Global Fund's 2020 to 2022 global goal is a minimum of $14 billion and a $1.56 billion annually would be the U.S. share at 33%, which does include an increase of $210 million per year from previous years. This comes at a critical juncture when we have the opportunity to end the epidemic status of three diseases globally, AIDS, TB, and malaria, over the next decade. Though we have halved AIDS deaths annually since 2005, the future challenges, including a growing youth bulge in the population of Africa, could quite likely create a scenario for an increase in HIV and AIDS infections and deaths if funding were cut. 
The good news is, of course, the House this week um, appropriations passed uh, FY20 uh, funding bill with PEPFAR at $5.39 billion and the Global Fund at $1.56 billion. So we were really excited to see that um, show support um, just this week. And with that funding, we'll be, have the opportunity to save an additional 16 million lives, avert 234 million infections of a disease cases, and spur $19 in economic returns and health gains for every $1 invested as projected by the Global Fund algorithm. Again, based upon the Global Fund algorithm, with, um, with an additional, um, this additional amount of funding, we can put an additional 400,000 people on ARVs and provide nivirapine to an additional 42,000 women to prevent passing of HIV AIDS to their babies in the fight against global AIDS. So the 2030 collaborative, uh, and here's a chart just showing, um, if you can see the difference in the color there, the purple is if we remained um, the um, business as usual, um, and we will continue to climb with a small, this modest increase of funding with the lighter purple in terms of cutting numbers of deaths um, over the next three years. And here's um, some of those stats I just suggested. So the 2030 Collaborative has partnered with Friends of the Global Fight to lead a robust faith-based coalition for the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria. And we're proud to have almost 150 leaders, such as Senator Dr. Bill Frist, Kenny Alphen of the band Big and Rich, artist Stephen Curtis Chapman, Amy Grant, Natalie Grant, Jennifer Nettles, columnist Mike Gerson, Olympic athlete Scott Hamilton, Paul Osteen of Lakewood Church, Jimmy Miata of Compassion International, and Sammy Rodriguez of NHLCLC, and many, many other doctors, pastors, and nonprofit leaders across the United States signed this important letter to Congress to request increased funding for the Global Fund during this replenishment year. There are many arguments for strong funding for our global health account, economic, public health, diplomatic, and national security. But the faith leaders best provide the cornerstone argument, the moral argument, for strong funding and policy for global health. Jesus says to whom much is given, much is expected, and one quarter of 1% of our U.S. federal budget goes to save the lives of millions and millions. It is a good investment of this sliver of funding as the wealthiest nation in the world. This historic overview of the past three administrations highlights just a few moments when U.S. faith leaders, namely conservative ones in this presentation, have played a pivotal role to stand for funding and change and provide a sustained presence of leadership backing Congress's bipartisan efforts to fund foreign assistance and the fight against global AIDS. Thank you.